Here at Early Excellence, we specialise in early childhood education. We offer expert advice and guidance through training, consultancy and classroom design. With the Early Excellence podcast, we aim to inspire and support you as well as challenge your thinking. So if that's what you're looking for, you've come to the right place. Hello everybody, Andy Burt here. Welcome along to episode 90 of the Early Excellence podcast. In this week's episode, we're joined by Lindsay Hadfield and Lizzie Battersby, both from one of our Early Excellence partner schools, uh, Royal Marsh Nursery School uh, in Rotherham in South Yorkshire. Now, as part of the senior team there, they have developed uh, opportunities for self-regulation and a real focus on self-regulation as part of their nursery practice. And so I caught up with them to talk all about it, to, to talk through the detail and how they've gone about that. So here you go. Here's my Early Excellence podcast chat with Lindsay and with Lizzie from Royal Marsh Nursery School in Rotherham. Lindsay and Lizzie, how are you? Really well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, very well. Very well, thanks. Yeah, not bad at all. Um, Thank you ever so much for joining us. Um, We're going to be talking about all sorts of things as part of the conversation, aren't we? Um, We're going to be talking about self-regulation and all sorts of skills and all sorts of things linked to that as well. And and the, the different things that you've put in place as part of your practice at the nursery really over a number of years. Um, Before we get into that, which all of that I think is really interesting, and I think lots of people listening will find that really interesting. Before we get into that, would you be able to just give us a a bit of a starting point, um, a bit of an introduction from both of you? Is that all right? So, Lindsay, should we start with you? um, You've got a really interesting role. You're the executive head teacher and head of centre at Raw Marsh uh, and also uh, at Arnold as well, both nursery schools. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, So I had the privilege of taking up the exec role. Um, I've been doing it for a year now. Uh, Prior to that, my background and my specialism has always been early years. I've worked um, as a teacher in foundation units in a range of different settings in the city of Nottingham, um, within the borough of Rotherham as well. I then took up the post as um, lead teacher for Rotherham, so worked um, supporting private voluntary and independent settings, and that then developed into a role of head of children's centres. So again, really looking at the sure start, not to five approach and the, the support that goes around families. Following that, I then went to work for um, a multi-academy trust as a senior leader, as a deputy head, and again worked in a range of different demographic environments, the majority of which were in areas of deprivation. And then I progressed to be a principal um, of a two-form entry primary school. So I've worn a lot of hats, but I do feel like I've come back to my roots um, with the exec job for maintaining nurseries, which I've got to say is a little bit like working in Disney for early years on most days of the year. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you, in terms of location, am I right in thinking you're you're in South Yorkshire, aren't you? You're in in Rotherham. We are, yeah. We're yeah. in the uh, in the borough of Rotherham. So the nursery school that we're currently discussing today is Raw Marsh. Um, so it's it's within Rotherham. Um, Rotherham's a very fantastic town to work in. It's um, got a range of cultural and and, and a range of um, different ethnicities as well. 
Um, and it's, it is a, a fantastic, beautiful town to work within. Rawmarsh itself sits just outside of the town centre. And as a nursery school, we do feed a range of different primaries um, within our reach as well. But the flip side of that is we do have we have held on to our children's centre. So we've still got the outreach and the family support that feed in to support the full package for parents within Rawmarsh as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and what about you, Lizzie? Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm not quite so as varied as Lindsay. Um, I, I did my last teaching placement. I did my early years degree um, here, and I've been here ever since. Basically, loved it and was delighted when they offered me a post here. So, I've just had my entire career here. I've been here for 17 years now, and um, sort of climbed up the ladder for want of a better expression. And uh, this is where I, I still am. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and you're your deputy head teacher, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I've, I've had five different heads. So every time you get a new head, it's almost like you move school. So I don't feel too too boring to say, say no, absolutely. No. <laughs> and, um, and just as Lindsay was saying actually I think working within a nursery school actually for, for people who are have that real specific interest in early years it is it is that you know those roles are like gold dust to a certain extent aren't they you know I, I wouldn't want to go somewhere else because whilst this nursery is very old and there's a lot of staff who've been here a long time it's also very reflective and a very progressive nursery school so I never feel like we stand still mm. we're always looking at the next piece of research or how we can how we can change our practice for the better so I, I don't feel like it's stayed for me to have been here for so long really no absolutely absolutely no that's really interesting thank you um and of course, we're, as I said before, we're going to talk about self-regulation. And I just felt that before we really get into it, there may be people who are listening to this who haven't really kind of got to grips with self-regulation or don't know that much about it themselves. There's been quite a lot about it, of course, within written within recent years, particularly since um, particularly since the the revised framework. So there, you know, it's there now within. Um, sort of mentioned quite a lot within within the revised framework, talks a lot about it um, in lots of different ways and also within the seven key features of effective practice. It's mentioned within that, um, within development, the Development Matters document as well. So there's, it's kind of been bubbling along and then kind of has, 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 has definitely come more to the forefront, I think, um, just within the last sort of three or four years, really. Um, but for people who don't know that much about it, should we start off with a bit of an introduction to self-regulation and what it is we're talking about? Yeah, so I think, like you say, it's it it's one of those terms that has been has has had a raised profile over the the past few years and and the changes and the the reforms that have come to the documentation. But I think when you do define self-regulation, anyone that is um, early years through and through it's it's just that high quality natural practice so it is about making sure that children have the ability to adapt their behavior to certain situations it's about having resilience to to come back when things get difficult to to regulate and be able to to discuss their feelings so again it links hand in hand with with having vocabulary and the ability to communicate effectively and then if they they do have the ability to self-regulate or to know when they're finding it difficult, which I think is as important to have the skill to be able to self-regulate, but also to identify when when they can't, it then allows them to have the executive function, which again is the other rather major term, which has been 
being banded around where they can then think flexibly, they can inhibit their impulsive behaviour, focusing their attention. And again, all of these phrases and all of the terms actually just boil down to characteristics of effective learning. And if if that is the thread that's running through your curriculum and running through your practice, you actually should, by osmosis, be teaching children the skills that they need to self-regulate and the the abilities which they will then need to progress through their education as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I think even if, for, for earliest teachers who perhaps were not familiar with the term self-regulation, I think when if if actually for if you're an experienced teacher or practitioner and you've been working with the characteristics of effective learning for a number of years, as many people have been, actually self-regulation fits very much with that, doesn't it? And so you probably would would read through the you know what we mean by self-regulation and think, well, actually we're doing a lot of that already. A lot of that's in place. Um, so it's almost like sort of a, a new terminology, if you like, for something that's already in place for some people which is great. Um, interestingly, I think you're right. The, the links with the characteristics of effective learning are, are, are very evident, aren't they? Um, but I, th- I think alongside that, I think sometimes people see self-regulation as just being something quite simple, that it being just about, maybe just about behavior, you know, that, that they'd become dysregulated Therefore, you know, they haven't got those self-regulation skills that it's just about behavior. When actually when you read into self-regulation, self-regulation isn't just that. That might be part of it and about that idea of, yes, being able to to kind of um, inhibit impulsive behavior and all of those sorts of things. But that actually self-regulation is more about uh, is, is as much about that as it is about um, the sort of the learning skills you know, the being able to plan ahead what you want to do, to be able to, to to concentrate, to be able to have some patience and resilience, all of which, of course, as we say, linked very linked very closely to those characteristics. Yeah, really, I think really interesting stuff. I think, and once you start to then use that as part of your practice, I think as a reflective tool, it becomes very interesting. Which I th- I think, from what I know of your practice, I think from it sounds to me that that's what you've put in place, which I think is is going to be really interesting to hear about. It is, and it's it, the one thing that we we do take a lot of pride in across the Federation of Nurseries is is we almost put put the children in in the adults' world. So it's a case of thinking the skills that you need to go on to be um, an effective citizen within modern day society. What what are we asking our children to do? So it is. It is the aspect of making sure that we're being respectful and giving them the opportunity to work through situations, to see how they deal with two-step problems, to see how they can plan and reflect, to see if they can organise themselves for simple tasks like lunch times. If you know as an adult, if you've had a really, really stressful day, what's the first thing that you might not do? You'll skip lunch. And that's because you're not you're not in a point to sit down and think, right, I need to come put that in the microphone while I need to do four different jobs so it's about making sure that at every point we've got effective check-ins with children and routines with children so that they are regulated throughout the nursery day as well and also know what's what's coming as well yes yeah absolutely the other thing that strikes me as well about about your work and, and I'm sure we'll come into onto this more is that of course you're working within a nursery 
and that it strikes me just from the outset that talking about self-regulation skills in nursery will be for some people a kind of almost like a sort of almost like a light bulb moment that they think well hang on a minute you know, we're talking about self-regulation or trying to get self-regulation skills in reception or in year one, when actually, of course, you're, you know, what you're saying, I think, just but just for the fact that you're, you know, by the fact that you're here and we're talking about it, is that actually it's very possible with nursery children, that actually with younger children, we can get in place those, those starting points of self-regulation skills. It might not be, of course, the end product. It might not be the end point if there is one. But it is actually, you know, we're getting going with that idea of having some independence, some thinking skills, some um, some resilience and so on, all of those sorts of things. Which, again, is characteristics of effective learning. And we know if children aren't secure in that, the, the barriers that that can produce and put in front of them as they progress through. So it is like you just say, the resilience. If, if you've got a child that really, really struggles with resilience, how are they going to tackle a year six arithmetic paper when it's got to be so fast paced to secure such an amount of marks, which will put them onto an expected pathway? It's, and it's all of that. So actually, I, I, we feel really strongly. I know Lizzie will talk about what we do and how we make that work. But actually, if you're leaving that for reception, it's too late because it, it's it's as important as any other aspect of the curriculum because if you don't have the skills or the language to be within a self-regulated point or, or orb, then you're not going to be able to access the academic curriculum. Yes, absolutely. I think that's kind of reflected, and Lindsay sort of said that really, but we have got our curriculum and that's obviously very important to us, but actually when it comes to observing our children, all our observations, we're not saying, can they count to 10, can they do this? can they do whatever we're saying let's look at which characteristics of effective learning they've shown us during that observation which things are they struggling with are they struggling to bounce back from difficulties do they just give up so what do we do next to help them with those skills so whilst we we teach, we have this fantastic curriculum and your intent your implementation and your impact actually that's almost a vehicle for delivering those characteristics of effective learning yes because we yeah, know absolutely then you're a learner for life, aren't you, once you've got those in place? Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of more of a balance, isn't it, between between what it is you want your children to, to learn and the skills, if you like, or knowledge, and then alongside that, they're kind of more of the how are they going to go about that and how are they going about that learning process and the, yeah, with the thinking skills and the resilience and so on. Sorry, I interrupted you then, but we, that's not just RF1s. Yeah. We've got twos to threes here as well. We did use some of the baby room and, you know, and that's – that's gone through from that naught point and it really has been all the way through you can start that straight away you know that not giving the toddler something straight away and letting them go and crawl along to get it that's that first point isn't it of characteristics of effective learning it is that like lizzie's just spoken about the curriculum and and where self-regulation fits it actually fits within our pedagogy if if we're not using self-regulation as as is a, a method through our effective pedagogy, then children will not be able to access the curriculum and not make progress throughout it. And like we've just touched upon our assessment, so we look at the well-being and the involvement of the children as well. That's the first starting point on our entry observations. That then forms a dialogue through our pupil progress meetings where our key people are involved, our class teachers, the full SLT team, 
that then feeds back to the parents. If we've noticed this, we've picked up on this, and it's it's that joined up approach using the commonality of language, which then will hopefully have a positive impact on the children to then be able to fully progress through the academic curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know from talking to you previously that, that self-regulation and, and self-regulation skills have been something that have been very important to you as part of your practice for, for actually quite a while. So I know that, that, Lindsay, you've worked, how long have you been at Royal Marsh? I've only been here 13 months now, so I can take zero credit <laughs> for this that has, that has gone before and, and how reflective the team have been to to really build this into what is high quality everyday practice across the setting. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. This well, one is his baby. So you're being very modest. You're, being, <laughs> so you, you, can't, you probably can't see, but next to you, Lizzie there is, is shaking her head as you're saying, I can take no credit at all whatsoever for this. You definitely can, I think. You know, even though you have only been there, say, 13 months, actually, you know, you've carried this work on, clearly, haven't you? You know, you, that's, you know, which of course is the important thing. You're, you know, you're keeping it going. You know, it, even, and I'm sure you're doing other things, but even if you weren't, you know, actually, no, it's about keeping the good work going, isn't it? And building on that. I think um, it's very, sorry, I think it, on that note, Andy, it's, it's like I say, I've, I've had the privilege to come and join such a fantastic maintained nursery. And we are in such a wonderful position where our threes to fours are our year sixes, but they don't have to jump through the statutory assessment hoop. But also with that in mind, I have got my primary experience behind me as well. And it's, it's knowing, I mean, so many names come to mind of children that needed real intensive support from our safeguarding and pastoral team. And you can link it all back to attributes of effective self-regulation that they were missing. So it's about working with the team for what's already there. And, and also, we did training at the beginning of the year, didn't we, where I cited an example of a little boy that I had the privilege to work with who didn't have effective self-regulation and the impact that that had on him. And the team, because our children leave us at four, don't necessarily get to see the impact that they do day in, day out on the journey that they set children up on. So it's about recognising what we're doing here, although it doesn't give us a, a league table score or a, a, you know, a fabulous um, data dashboard. It's skills that aren't necessarily measured. They should be and they should be measured and, and should be given the the profile and the priority by different organizations but it's about it's about the children that do just go through education because they can because they've had a high early years education yeah yeah and i think that there has been certainly over the last few years more research on it and i know the education endowment foundation they did some research on this fairly recently just within the last couple of years and they found that children with um, effective self-regulation skills or, or actually no I think the term was something like settings that really value self-regulation skills within those settings you tend to see um, an average of I think it was five months more development in terms of the children um, I'd need to check that but I'm pretty sure that the the, the the quote that I've shared I've shared it just recently was to do with five months uh, of progress of the children and that the impact of self-regulation skills is seen within that, which is it's incredible, really, when you think about it, because that's massive, isn't it? But if that's having to happen when they're already in statutory assessment, 
they're already battling against something. So it's about it, it happening at the earliest point and the work that we can do with families and with children, like I say, even at, at the age of two, can be so powerful. Yeah, definitely. So I'm just interested to know, obviously, Lindsay, you were saying you've been there for 13 months. Lizzie, you've been there for, for longer. <laughs> uh, was there a, a point at which at which this became, uh, I don't know, an, a, a discussion point? Was there, a, was there a, a moment where you thought, actually, we're going to, we're really going to have a change of approach here and we're going to make sure that self-regulation or the characteristics of effective learning are really central to what we're doing? Or is it something that's just always been the case and you've built on it? I think there's, there's sort of a number of things that sort of all sort of come together, sort of different pathways that have all come together to it. So at the point right now, um, the sort of thing, probably the starting point really was um, was Thrive, um, the Thrive principles. Um, so we had a number of practitioners who were, who were trained in Thrive, myself included. Um, and I'm going back as far as 2010 actually now, and it was just so interesting because it was draw, draws on, on proper brain science. You know, it's, it's not just some theory somebody's made up out you know out of thin air and then sort of this is wobbly and cuddly woodly. Um, and it made sense, you know, in the same way we teach a child to kick a ball by repeating that process, we can teach them to have positive emotions in the same way because the same pathways get laid, laid down in the brain. Um, so it, really interesting stuff. And obviously we've brought it back to setting and we tried those those principles. Uh, and we could see they were working, you know, children who might still have been dysregulated and upset and found transition time difficult in the morning and might still have been like that at Christmas, weren't. <laughs> you know, they were within a couple of weeks, we've got those children settled, which is so fantastic for their learning because then they can get on with the business of learning, can't they? Because they're not in this awful upset state. And just simple things like, you know, we learned don't distract a child off who was upset to go and do a jigsaw puzzle because you know, if you crashed your car and then someone asked you to go and do a jigsaw puzzle, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do it, would you? You know, you were too upset to think about the jigsaw puzzle. And yet we did that. And as soon as somebody says that, you think, of course, that makes perfect sense. And and it was about saying, I can see that you're so upset. I can see you're really sad. And let me help you with that. Let me let me sort of catch that big feeling for you and deal with it. So it worked on sort of that that sort of more basic day to day level, but also with some really, really challenging children as well. We had some really good outcomes with that teaching them skills like you know if your tummy's feeling really fiery and hot quickly put your hands in your pocket come and find a grown-up who can help you manage that feeling and it was taking that level of responsibility away from children saying you're too little to manage this because a lot of our children sort of have these woolly boundaries and and aren't quite sure they think they're the grown-up sometimes so we were saying no we are the grown-up you are only little let us help you with that and give you some strategies to manage it so we sort of we got that journey, and then alongside that, um, a little bit later on, we we got brought into the forest school um, idea, and some of our practitioners were trained around around that. Um, and what was coming out of all the conversations with them was the impact on emotional uh, well-being. Um, so we sort of we for a long time followed the SEAL stuff from years and years ago um, with, in terms of nurture groups. So we sort of revised that and said, right, well, let's make our nurture group a forest school group. Um, and everything was outside and, and working that way. And actually, that's become part of our whole curriculum mm. now. We, the whole, we've always done outdoor teaching. That's always been part of what we do. We're very lucky. We've got a beautiful, beautiful garden. Um, but we've really, it's really become embedded um, through our curriculum. Every, everything's, you know, we do key text through forest school teaching, and uh, just and, and children's well-being is so is so much better for it. You know, we 
we have full days where the whole nursery is outside and everybody's just calmer and you know we, we know that from the evidence and we've got a lovely quote here from um capaldi um not lewis um, <laughs> i don't think uh and martin and, it, and it's talking about by promoting that connection with nature with little children um adolescents that then as adolescents have a better well-being um and that's that's what Lindsay sort of talked about, isn't it? It's having that long-term view that this work we do now has that impact later on. That we yeah, have. yeah, definitely, definitely. It it always surprises me. I think that I think we all know, not just in teaching, but in society as a whole, that being outdoors has a big impact on our well-being. And we only need to sort of think back to say lockdown, when actually you know getting outside was more restricted. How suddenly everybody thought actually, do you know what? That's really important. I'm going to make sure I use that half an hour and I'm going to get outside. Even if it's just for a walk or whatever it might be, getting outside actually is important to our well-being. And yet, actually, in terms of early years education or in terms of schools as a whole, access to outdoors is often something that is really closely timetabled to the point where it's, you know, it's like 20 minutes outside, then back in again or whatever it might be. And yet all of us know that... Sorry, I missed that. I keep interrupting. I'm so sorry. No, no, you're fine. And yet, and yet all of us know that that actually, you know, when children do step outside, that you will often find that actually they can self-regulate far more effectively, that actually they seem calmer. Children who perhaps were getting particularly cross about something inside suddenly actually seem a bit calmer and a bit more reflective perhaps. Um, it also has an impact on timings. You know, that quite often we... We lose track of the time when we're outside because we're engaged in something and engrossed in something, all of the sorts of things we want, but that actually we lose if it's just really closely timetabled and monitored where it's just sort of 20 minutes here and there outside, let off some steam and get back inside. Let off some steam and whip yourself up and then sit down and get back to the It is interesting, isn't it? It doesn't fit, does it, really? that kind of approach we saw that contrast a little bit because we've always been so outdoorsy anyway that the forest school learning that we've sort of been able to bring to it is almost like a cherry on the top for us really but when we were during covid we had to split our nursery because we're a huge nursery into three little bubbles we had to take turns in the garden and it was just for us as practitioners who've always worked in this particular way where outdoors is a really big part of our it is part of our classroom we don't say that in a tokenistic way suddenly we might have 45 minutes or an hour and it was just awful <laughs> I mean one of our one of our proper outdoor ladies she was climbing the walls worse than any three-year-old you know? so, but you suddenly realize the how the value of that um, yeah. and, and luckily we've got a little orchard so sometimes you had a whole day in the orchard and it was just it was just but I think whilst that was a tough year it really helped us to appreciate what we've got the rest of the time now, now we're sort of back to normal um, and, and, to, and to see the value of that for the children. And I think it's that, like like we, we said earlier, it's it's having that unconditional respect for children, so knowing what they deserve. So we know that our children deserve constant access to what is their garden, which is our nursery garden. We know that our children deserve adults that are emotionally available and in tune to them and can help support them and it's it's I think once you you almost have your non-negotiables of what what should the children have as an absolute baseline that becomes 
just part of your everyday practice and it, it just the, the the level of emotional language and vocabulary that our staff use it just rolls off their tongue therefore you will then hear children parroting that back within the home corner or going to attempt to regulate a new starter in January because they've heard we're going to keep you safe we know it's a little bit scary we know what that might feel but we're here until mum or dad comes back or we can tell that you're feeling cross because you're telling us that your tummy feels like that and you will hear three and four year olds that's amazing isn't it using that which again put that into fast forward 15 years when they may or 20 years when they may be in a high pressure job at three years old they could do that so what world are we opening up for our next generation Yes, no, absolutely. It's it's crucial, isn't it? It really is crucial. Um, the the other thing that it made me think about just when you were talking about that sort of um, adults who were available for the children emotionally, it made me think of a couple of things. First of all, it made me think that actually, in order to achieve that, you've got to have pra- the practice overall needs to be working, and. Every moment of every day needs to work really effectively. So, for example, if if you end up with, um, say, an environment where you're having to 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 get lots of things out or change lots of things over every day, or um, you're having to deal with lots of logistics, whether that be you know children going on the bikes or whatever it might be. The adult actually is removed from being that emotional person who's who's there supporting the children because they're just thinking, well, we've got to do this, we've got to get this done, we've, you know, I've got to sort out whose turn it is on the bikes or or who's on the climbing frame or whatever it might be. And in order to in order to do that, we we lose the the emotional side, we lose the the kind of connecting with children just on a basic level, and also the connecting with them as learners. We lose that as well. And so it struck me that in order to get to where you're currently at, actually, that's on top of what's already effective practice. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I think the best way to describe it, because obviously anyone that's listening to this podcast, the majority of people won't have been to our setting, but to me, our curriculum and our provision draws the lines and our staff interactions colour it in. And that's what then creates the beautiful masterpiece, which is our nursery. So it's, and it's, Lizzie's laughing now. <laughs> That'll be on the wall by the end of this. Impressive quote. Um, but it, it does, and you could have an all singing, all dancing setting, but if the routines aren't right and staff don't know, I mean, we are rotated to within an inch of our life within our nursery, and any of the staff team that are listening to this at a later date will be howling because literally everybody knows where they need to be, but not only that, they know why. Because if that person isn't there, something else isn't happening. Therefore, it's inconsistent for the children. And it's it's about that as well. The, the children need to know the routines and what to expect. Therefore, the adults do. Therefore, there are days where things go wrong, where, you know, you are changing 14 children or it's sideways rain, so the wetsuits haven't dried over lunch. There are things where they are, there are periods of change, and you know that, but... The staff can then respond to it because they have the emotional toolkit. And I think on that point as well, Andy, staff can only be emotionally available to children if they are self-regulated themselves. So you can't 
you can't expect staff members to be able to support the emotional development and well-being of children if if they're struggling and I think that's that comes down to the the environment which you create as leaders for your staff to come and work within as well because it is so close there's nothing like working in an set you know warts and alls don't you and everything of your, your teammates because you are together so long dealing with a hundred odd nursery children so it's it's about investing time in your staff's well-being as well because you can't expect them to do the most important job in the world which is to attempt children to reach a higher plane of well-being if they're not okay as well so it's recognizing and valuing that for your staff teams mm. yeah chocolate absolutely easel, chocolate down the back of the chocolate easel yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always helps yes yeah. yeah definitely um and so um can you can you tell us a, a, about the sort of the the key elements to what you've put in place so you know if if say say if we were to if if i was to come into the nursery or if you were to invite a visitor in and you were to say right well self regulation for us is absolutely the you know right at the heart of our practice what would we see you know can you can you kind of paint the picture for us what would what would we see in terms of the the setting itself and the practice itself i think it's going back to what Lindsay said really staff first absolutely they they are so well trained we invest in in what they know they understand why we want them to do something in a specific way um, and then they buy, they buy into it um, they see it work we reflect a lot about about what's going well in, in the setting and they have a voice in that as well they see those children every day often more so than, than myself and Lindsay so we listen to their values so I think that that's the first point, and it's like Lindsay's just said really about their emotional well-being. But in terms of sort of the day-to-day teaching, it is that it is that we've got those solid routines. There is also, although the road to this flexibility, so if a child needs lots of time with our particular grown-up on a one-to-one, we can we can shift things around. We can be flexible. The other team members will, will sort of allow that to happen by taking over. Um, and you've got you've got to have that flexibility but again that comes from having those strong relationships in the team as well doesn't it we are like a family um we, as a team so that does help but we've got additional things that we sort of put in place so that's threaded through the everyday teaching we expect that as almost a minimum but then we do through our pupil progress have a little look and, and discuss the children that might need a little bit more might need a little bit extra and as i sort of touched on earlier we have a, what we call a world explorers group uh, and then little explorers for our two to three so there's some children that just need a little bit more one-to-one time where you know learning maybe it might be teamwork sort of skills might never have been with other children particularly at the minute with all the po- sort of post-pandemic fallout some children need lots of help with that um, so we identify groups of children who will go and work with one of our forest school practitioners and they might do something like building a hammock together, sort of build that team building. Um, it's that resilience, having a bash at climbing up a tree, keep celebrating that with each other, um, using floor books to reflect on what they've learned together and having that shared moment where they look at photographs um, and, and sitting together in the world explorer shed and having hot chocolate, you know, that sort of really basic, simple, but nurturing and comforting and level Um that's just so lovely. I mean, everybody wants to go in the shed with the hot chocolate, now, don't they? <laughs> but that's, so that's, it sounds like we just sort of plucked these ideas out of thing air. There is a program, and everything that is done in that World Explorers group is done with a reason. You know, we know why they're in each activity, and and that has to be flexible. So I've got programs for different times of year because 
We did try it once and it was absolutely freezing cold and chucking children up trees and, and everyone was tired, <laughs> crap included. So you, you make mistakes and you learn from them, don't you? You do. Um, so, and that's been really successful for us. Um, so, re- but, but it is those, it is that high quality teaching day in, day out and that availability of staff. I and think I think good. what you'll also not see is an overstimulated environment which changes weekly. Um, I think so many settings can um, can almost misinterpret what awe and wonder can be defined as for children and feel like every Monday the children need to walk into a, an amazing, different, tough spot or creative. But actually, what children need is they need the time to revisit, to recall, to really be secure in their surroundings. So if you walk into our setting and our provision you will see subtle elements where our curriculum is spreaded through, but it is the staff knowledge that know the end learning goal and how to get children there, not necessarily hundreds of laminated hanging pieces from a ceiling, which the children won't necessarily see. So it's about creating the environment as well where the real body of work can happen, making sure that that is is not overbearing, is not overstimulating and not ever-changing for young children that are just that we are wanting to be secure in an inner setting. I think that actually builds into the use of your time as well, doesn't mm. it? Because when staff are off making all these singing or dancing things that no one really ever looks at, then you're not talking about children as a team. Yeah. We at the end of every single teaching day we have what we call a powwow because we like to give things fancy fancy names. Um but we have a little powwow and, and it is that we come together, we talk about how the day's gone, we talk about children who've struggled, what we can do to help them the day after because we have that time, because people aren't going off to cut out and, and all the rest of it, and, and yeah, it's using your time wisely, isn't it as well? Absolutely, and that every day, done every day, it doesn't have to take that long, does it? You know, it could be say five or ten minutes, but actually, if you do that every single day, you can kind of carry on the conversation every day from where almost from where you left off. And what have we noticed today? Is anybody concerned about this particular child? Did you notice his reaction or her reaction? You know, all of those sorts of things actually are really important because if it goes, you know, if you go for, say, three weeks without having that time, you've missed such a lot, haven't you? You know, it can, which can so easily happen, can't it? The weeks go so quickly. Everybody is so busy that actually it can be very easy to miss those kind of touch points of being together as a team and just discussing something together as a team. And yet it, those those moments, those minutes of being together make you a, a stronger team and I think a more reflective team. And it means that things don't get missed because people's hunches, you know, they're in the right environment where people feel supported. Somebody will say, you know what? I may be completely wrong about this, but I just wonder about so-and-so, you know, this child. And suddenly everybody else is then aware of it and we notice. Whereas, you know, as I say, if you go three weeks without having had that conversation, which is so easy to end up doing, we can miss out on things, I think. And it's, again, valuing that child that you might be discussing in 20 years' time. So if that child, you, you would think as an adult, if you weren't right or you weren't fully regulated you'd want your colleagues to pick up on that in the workplace you'd want your family to pick up on that in the workplace we spend so much time with these children we should be again giving those children that time for us to observe but then also carving out that time for us to come together and go do you know what something's just not quite right that that should happen as an adult so it certainly should happen when you're a child away from your family 
at the age of two, three or four. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think it's really interesting. I also think just going back to what you were saying a, a minute or two ago, um, consistency is so key to this. Really important. And I, I don't think I mean, I, I feel like I talk about it all the time. I feel like I just bang on about it all the time. But in terms of consistency, we know actually the, the impact on on inconsistency for adults you know, and what that, what that's like, you know, if you've had a member of staff who's been off for, I don't know, for a few weeks and then they come back and when they come back, you've moved everything around and they don't know where things are. That member of staff suddenly doesn't feel like they belong anymore. They don't feel like they're part of the team anymore. I can't find anything. You know, I'm having to ask people where, where is this now? And all of those sorts of things. And you just don't feel part of what's happening in that's, that's as an adult. Whereas for children, what we often do is we swap and change that learning environment around all the time. Um, and yet the one thing we are wanting, we're hoping to aim for is security and confidence and independence. And that's that idea of all of those self-regulation skills. And yet the swapping and changing really, to me, if anything, it's going to get in the way of that if we do it too much, really. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely on the right track. I, th I think we often I think we often end up celebrating change too much. So when somebody's done something new in the room, created a new area, changed the room around, people will come. You know, if you work in a primary school, people will come into the room and go, oh, I like the changes you've made and all of that kind of thing. When actually I think we, sh we should be celebrating consistency far more than we than we actually do. And that's evident, again, not just in provision, but within the rotors for staff. So when we open our doors, there will be a staff member on the door, but there's also a family link role, and that, that is consistent. So the family link person is there to support children that might need it, and that happens every time our doors open. So the, the parents know they are greeted at the door by an adult, but there is also that second adult should we need that extra layer, just have that extra couple of minutes, support the the, the, um, the taking of the child and bringing into the setting. And that parents know that happens. And so then, again, it's about valuing what and, and really unpicking what that will feel like as a parent. You're handing over your potentially upset child and being asked to walk away, which goes against every parental instinct that you've ever had. But actually, they've been greeted by two adults at two points, and that you know that will happen tomorrow as well. Yes, yeah. And that consistency as well helps the parent as well as the child, as you were saying, meaning that hopefully the parent is less anxious knowing that this moment is coming. And hopefully the child then hopefully feels that that reduced anxiety as well leading up to that point so it, you know it all does very much fit together it's in lots of ways simple you know these are sort of in some ways simple principles aren't they at the same time miss them kind of at your peril because actually that's the point at when more parents more children become more upset and actually they start the day you know, really miserable and upset and actually, you know, it can spiral from there if we're not careful. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's such important stuff, really, I think. Um, tell us about then the, well, you've touched on it already a little bit, but tell us a bit about the impact on, you know, on your children. Um, 
you know, what you see. Are you able to um, are you able to talk about maybe one particular child or a small group of children and the impact on on those children? Don't you know? You don't need to name any names or anything like that. But if you can think of an individual child, it would be quite interesting to to kind of hear a kind of almost like a case study, if that's possible. Yeah, um, I had a little boy um, probably a couple of years since now. Um, it, it very very angry. Never never really gets to the bottom of why and conversations with parents, they weren't really sure why either. They, they were a little bit younger and I think it was overwhelming for them sometimes when it behaved the way it did. Um, but would get really quite aggressive, sort of push and shove other children out of his way almost as if they weren't there. Um, and in, to all intents and purposes, it, was, it almost looked like this was a child with maybe some additional needs. But when you looked at one of the things that we learned sort of on the, on the Thrive training that we did um, previously was that for every 10 children that get referred for a diagnosis, only four get one. So what's going on for those other six children, which always kind of sticks with me a little bit. And I think, yeah, so we need to be careful about not missing either, don't we, really? Um, so we, we started employing some of the, the strategies about sort of catching and matching. Um, and when he would go up, you sort of go up with him and, and take the turn, but your calming voice is then able to bring him back down again. Um and he really wasn't very secure. It just physically, you know, sort of, we're actually going back to sort of physiological thing as well. His core strength wasn't very good, so he didn't actually feel very safe, just at a sort of basic level in his own skin almost, never mind these big emotions he was having. So did lots of work on his physicality, you know, getting him, his core strength better so he felt more secure, so he wasn't crashing into other children. And that makes you dysregulated, doesn't it? It's a bit like if you're in a crowd at a concert, you feel a bit jostled about, a bit, oh, um, so we sort of worked on that with him. But also when he used to get really cross, really describing it for him, your face has gone so red. You're looking really angry. I'm, you know, I think I might need to help you with that. And sometimes he would let you give him a cuddle, but a lot of the times he wouldn't. So he'd be laid on the floor. So you laid with him. So I'm not going to touch you, but I'm here with you. I'm keeping you safe. I can see that you're going through something. So I, I need to be here with you. And then as we would come out of these moments, you could have a dialogue with him and say, when you get that feeling again, Let's put your hands in your pockets. And we got to a point with him where he could have a headscarf. So he had a little headscarf in his pocket and he'd let you into it with him. So you could do that eye, lovely eye contact and have a little giggle with him in that headscarf. But you knew if he got that out, that meant I'm, I'm really struggling with this. Come and be with me, help me. Um, and then again, sort of moved on from that. And, and then he'd just go and get in the cot in the home corner and just rock himself in that. And he was a huge child. So <laughs> legs sticking out at one end and out the other. But, you know, he just sort of rocked himself in that a little bit and, and then would get up and go on his way. So we sort of went from having to have this grown-up with him in those really sort of desperate moments to I just go and rock myself a little bit in this cot. Then, then I'm okay and get on with my day. And he, he got so he could talk about having that funny feeling. I'm feeling a bit, a bit angry in my tummy. So he was a real... That was fantastic because it meant he could get on with his learning. And, yeah. And so that's really brain. powerful. Yeah. Well, he got to let other children in under this headscarf as well. You know, it didn't need to be me. And um, this other, other other little girl would go under with him as well. So just fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's amazing. And and I think as well, you know, you think about the flip side of that, that if you hadn't been able to catch that child at that moment, that you can, we've probably all encountered children who actually have never had that experience that opportunity in nursery to have to build those relationships in the way that you're talking about who actually 
do then find it more difficult in reception and then in, in key stage one and then beyond that and that they continue to be children who have these flashpoints perhaps who get very angry and are, are unable to control their emotions and so on and that actually we're talking about something that you know could potentially be with them for life and yet actually you're talking about at three or maybe you know or maybe younger being able to actually manage that or, or teaching children the some of the skills, the early skills in being able to manage those emotions, that's incredibly powerful. I think you have to be committed to it, though, as well. And it goes back to that organisation. I could only give him that time because we've got the organisation in the room in terms of staff and in terms of layout. You know, it, it's the same sort of thing. We need to hear a word so many times before it goes into that long-term memory. It's the same principle. It's 500 repetitions of that positivity before that child is able to manage that themselves, you know, and that, that's the first time of it. So you've got to really commit to it. You can't just think I've tried it twice. You've got to really believe in what you're delivering um, and, and know that you're doing it for the good of that child. And I think, again, it, it, one of the things that we learned was about, you know, cortisol, this sort of stress hormones left in the brain. Nobody helps that child discharge it. It's there for 24 hours and that child can be there in that awful state. You know, what, what earliest practitioner wants to leave a child in that sort of state for so long? We have to have this moral responsibility, don't we, to help them yes. with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it strikes me as well that it's about consistency across the team as well, that that not just your response to this child is going to be like this, but actually whichever adult this child goes to, they will find the same response. So you're not going to have one person who kind of is a, is a bit of a rogue practitioner who's just going to go, well, take the headscarf off, what are you doing kind of thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? um, you're going to have actually whoever, he, whoever this child goes to, they're still going to get exactly the same level of support, the same level of nurture and, and so on, Which that's because that's key, isn't it? Otherwise, actually, a lot of that breaks down, really. And that's where your daily powwows come in. So it's that conversation. We've got children currently in setting now where we're having to adapt and reflect and amend. And the daily powwows are so powerful so that the next day, whoever those children do encounter, everyone has got the same toolbox of strategies or everyone knows that didn't work yesterday. So let's let's not touch that and let's go with this idea and then let's come together and let's evaluate at the end of the day. Yeah, interesting. Which brings us on to really my final question, really, or final thing to to think about and discuss, um, which was, you know, you've obviously got um, so much that's embedded, so much that's there as part of your practice that, of course, you know, we, we can and should celebrate. But I just wondered, is there anything that you're you're kind of you're building into that is is, a, is there a kind of a is there a what's next aspect to what you're doing I wonder you know is there something else that you're you're moving forward with as well I think at the minute it's it's about maintaining and sustaining what we've got um education and early years is an ever-changing picture at the minute and again any colleagues that listen to this will know the increase in in send that's coming through that how we're having to respond you know and every child that we have the privilege of dealing with is is a fantastic learning experience but how we are responding and having to respond differently to certain to different needs and so it's about making sure that our core key threads remain that and that we do maintain and sustain um but it's also making sure that 
like like we've touched upon this morning, there are so many different messages and so many different balls to juggle. It's not forgetting your bread and butter. So it's not it's it's having conversations like this with other settings. With um, we do we do we've got fantastic links with our local authority, and we have really good links with our maintained head teachers. And it's this is part of the discussions that we're having as well because education is so pressured and fast paced. It's it's not forgetting the core basics, which can do so much good in such a high pressured, ever changing world. And especially with the fallout from the pandemic. Maintained nurseries weren't privy to the COVID catch-up funding, so it's about us looking differently at what we can do before children enter statutory and making sure that we are keeping what we know works so well and holds so dear, ever-present within every interaction with parents, with children and with families as well. I think we we started a bit on that journey last year, didn't we, with... um... We, we did some training on intensive interactions, yeah. um, which came from uh, is it Phoebe Caldwell, I think yeah. it is, um, and and that actually it sat really lovely alongside what we sort of learned about Thrive and and if you respond to a child, repeat their sounds back to them or their their movements back to them, you say I, I get your world, I understand your world a little bit, and it and then you sort of have these little breakthroughs with your children um, who might have additional needs as well. So it's remembering everybody. <laughs> Yeah. Remembering all our children and finding ways in for, for all our children. You know, that works really well for some children, but we need something a little bit different for this group of children. So what we're going to do about that is that keeping on looking at, yeah. is anybody being missed? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and like you say, sometimes the simplest things can make all the difference. You know, the, you know we often talk a lot about the importance of adult interactions, which, of course, we should because they are you know so crucial, as we've talked about already. But I think actually we don't make enough of of actually what physically adults need to be doing when they're interacting, that actually our body language and how we mirror what children are doing and how we copy what they're doing, actually all of that is sends messages to the children about how valuable they are and how interested we are in what they're doing and how we're joining them on this journey rather than trying to interrupt what they're doing. I don't think we make quite enough about that. And I think I think you're right. I think I think it's so important to keep going back to all of those things, because I think quite often in education, as soon as you feel that something is embedded and you kind of don't need to talk about it anymore, that's often the point that things start to slip. And I work with so many settings where I introduce something, you know, as part of training. And then somebody will say, oh, we used to do that two or three years ago. And I don't know why we stopped. You know, I don't know why that went because it works. But it, but we're often juggling. Yeah, we're juggling so many things. It goes, doesn't it? Sometimes we introduced obviously the Thrive principles to people who've been licensed originally, um, and we go, we shared that with our staff. But we we go back over it with our staff. We revisit those principles. It forms our behaviour policy yeah. as well. So it's it it it's very much within. But it is. It's given the time that it deserves mm. to be discussed and refreshed and and also valued and celebrated. Like Lizzie's just given the fantastic example of the little boy and, and it had such impact. It's valuing and celebrating that because it is it is a hard slog and it is and that it that has to be done prior to them coming and experiencing the curriculum or a maths checkpoint or any element. The you know, that investment has to be given. So it is a it is really, really 
intensive piece of work that you are doing with children. So it's about, again, celebrating it so that it does re-energise staff. And our staff are fantastic, don't necessarily need re-energising, but it is just refocusing. Look, we know it works. Let's yeah. keep going. Yeah, absolutely. And sticking at it. Um, Lindsay and Lizzie, it has been fantastic to talk to both of you. Really, really interesting. Um, so interesting, I think, to hear about something which is very much that long term view of what you've put in place there. That I think you hear such a lot. I hear such a lot of people talking about kind of quick fixes of things. You do this, you get this, you know, and it's so it's so tempting isn't it to, to to sign up to something you think oh yeah just need to do that within it within a couple of months we've got it sorted when actually what we all know I think in our heart of hearts is that if you're going to really have quality in terms of practice that quality of practice takes time to build and it it has to be built on solid foundations where everybody knows exactly what you're doing why you're doing it the routines are working the environment is working and that you you then really look in depth at all of the, those sorts of things that we've been talking about so yeah no i think it's it's really inspirational to talk to you and, and to really get that idea of of something that isn't just a quick thing actually it's it's and it's not just done either it's something that you have to keep coming back to and to revisit it's it's yeah vital work i think really really important so so thank you so much for joining us on the podcast i'm sure people who are listening to this will have found it really really interesting so so thank you ever so much thanks andy So there you go. Thank you very much to both Lindsay and to Lizzie for joining us for this week's episode of the podcast. Really interesting conversations there, really interesting discussions. Um, I think it's it's so powerful when you consider what happens when you put self-regulation right at the centre of the practice and that everybody on the team is part of that process of making sure self-regulation is seen as important and crucial, not just in the short term, but actually in the long term as well. When you think about that long term impact for young children and those self-regulation skills and how key they are for them as they develop as learners over time. So really important, really powerful stuff, I think. Now, I mentioned earlier on that I know Lindsay from when we have delivered early excellence training at Raw Marsh. Uh, and that's because, of course, Raw Marsh are one of our partner schools for early excellence. So we have this link with Raw Marsh where we will deliver training at the setting. And also that training is open to other people from other settings to come and join in. So it is a real hub there of effective practice. Now, um, it's a great way, if you're interested in becoming a partner school, it's a great way of connecting with us at Early Excellence and also a great way of, as I say, becoming a hub of effective practice within your local area, whether you're a, a nursery school or whether you're a primary school, certainly well worth considering. If you want to know more about that process of becoming a partner school uh, with Early Excellence, then please do get in touch. My email address is just andy at earlyexcellence.com. Andy at earlyexcellence.com. You can also find out more about the training that we offer and about the process of becoming a partner school if you go to our website, which is just earlyexcellence.com, www.earlyexcellence.com. And you'll find, you can find out all about it on there. All right. Um, that's about it for this week, everybody. Thank you again for listening and we will see you next time. Have a good week, everybody. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.